Gracious Father, thank you. Your word says that where we are gathered, two or more in your name, you are right there in your midst. Jesus, you are right here. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You have uh, conquered death. You've risen from the dead. You dwell in our hearts and you have awesome things in store for us. And I ask you, Lord, that you would teach us how we can walk in that resurrection power of Christ. I ask you, Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would instruct us through your word, that you would give us faith. I ask you, Lord, that you would, uh, even this week, God, give us opportunities to share and be witnesses of that resurrection because we have experienced that in our own hearts. Lord, as we look into your word and we, we look at your scriptures and what they have to say about the resurrection of Jesus and its importance to us, give us ears to hear. Father, what a central word this is to us. What a central teaching in your kingdom. So Spirit of God, you take these truths and you apply them to our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the two atomic bombs that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Yeah. I remember when I was, I think I was back in junior high school, we were studying the Depression and World War II, and I remember the, uh, I, I had to draw the, what are the fat boy, little, what, what, what were they called, the fat boy and the, and the little man or whatever it was, I can't remember now, but uh, strange names, that, nicknames that were given to them, and the, in, in drawing them and diagramming, because we had to understand uh, just the internal, uh, at least to some degree, that it was the, the splitting of atoms and such. And what amazed me was after studying this, then seeing um, pictures of atomic bombs and to read about the absolute destruction, hundreds of thousands that lost their lives. Uh, what what shock, what, what amazing... Um, power of destruction is found in the atom. That's like the... I, I'm, gonna, I'm not being a physicist here, but it's the smallest thing that, that, uh, that God has created. Others, there's subatomic particles. I won't that. But the atom, and can you believe that? An atom splitting can create, has such power uh, that's unleashed from it. I want you to think what that power would be like instead of bringing utter devastation, destruction, death, that it did just the opposite. Okay, picture that in your minds and, and tell me what you see. What do you see? It brings just the opposite. Leanne, what do you see? I am here because those bombs were dropped. Because the U.S. was getting ready to invade Japan and they were estimating that there would be between one and two million lives lost in that invasion. So they studied and felt it would be the lesser of two evils to go ahead and drop those bombs. And I am here because my dad was going to be in that invasion force and he likely would not have survived. So that, to me, okay. brought that power to good. Okay. <coughs> All right. Now, it just take... In your mind, I just painted a picture of destruction you've ever seen some of all fears, okay, you kind of get a little bit more from Hollywood. 
I am asking for the exact opposite. Instead of bringing death and destruction, it, it brings the opposite. And that's all I'm going to say, the opposite. What do you see, Mary? Lots of flowers and birds and trees and light. Okay, all right. What else do you see? Order. Say again? Order. Order, okay. Instead of disorder, because that's what the bombs do. Okay, good. Anything else? Brian? You see a power plant? Okay, so harnessed energy. Okay, thank you, Brian. Of course, you would share that with us. All right. I see, um, well, life and, like, new connections, new things being built. Okay. Like new things, expansion. Okay. All right, good. Anybody else? Yeah, May? I see families working together and loving each other. Cool. Awesome. Uh, Steve? There you go. All right. Without world without dialysis. Thank you, Steve. Here is the honest truth. The small particle brings such destruction, but the God who fills the universe created all of this. And I want you to imagine that power that God exercised in creating all things. And we're going to be, really what we're talking about tonight, the resurrection power of Jesus, really is that creative, life-giving, that is what creation is, life-giving power of God. Let me read a verse to you from Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I, I'm going to jump in with verse, uh, verse 19, because this is his prayer for them. All right, that they um, that they might know now, verse thirteen, various things, and by the way, it throws in the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and all that's included in that. It's awesome. And then verse nineteen, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is in. I want you to right now put that next word, like, I'm reading from the NIV, put that word in parentheses. That word is not in the Greek. I don't know why the NIV chose that. No, it is that power is. That power is the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. And he continues to go on. Powerful, powerful message here. The re- that very power that God used in raising Jesus from the dead is that incomparably great power for us who believe. Do you, do you see that? The power of the Spirit of God that he has encased us in that if you turn over to chapter 3 verse 21 uh starting with verse 20 really it says now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us do you you see that so he's able to do more than all that we ask or imagine in accordance to or in the same measure as 
That power that is at work within us. So do you see that power that is at work within you? That is God's resurrection power that he has placed in us by his spirit. He says, that that is at work with... Okay, let me back up. I'm going to read it one more time. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Can you say amen to that? That is, you take the greatest prayer, the, the greatest miracle that you cried out to God for. His power to do that is in accordance with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that we just read about in chapter 1. This uh, power is infinitely... Now, if infinitely is too hard for you to imagine, put a number on it. A million. Or a billion. Or maybe think of the number that matches our national debt. That that changes constantly, okay? So, anyways, multiply... The destructive power of the atomic bomb reverse it for the positive and then multiply it by that number. That is the resurrection power of Jesus that he has made available to us. He's placed within us according to his power that is at work within us. Okay? I want us to talk about that that power. We're going to look at some theological slants to this. We're going to get practical. I want us to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, aside from what I said, Easter is less than two weeks away. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean to you? What does it mean to you? When you think of the resurrection of Jesus, apart from what I just said, anything else that comes to your mind? The resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean to you? Life. Life. Eternal okay. life. Eternal life. Okay. Forgiven. Okay. Yes. Complete victory over all death. Complete victory over all death and sin. Okay. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Turn to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, if you would. In First Corinthians chapter fifteen, Paul reveals an issue that the Corinthians are having to deal with. There apparently are those that do not believe that there is a resurrection. There are some who believed that the resurrection had already passed. These seem to believe, much like the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. The the Sadducees not only believed that there was no resurrection, they also believed that there was no spirit, there were no angels, there was God, and there was creation, material creation, and that's it. Um, I'm not exactly sure why the Sadducees believed that, uh, we do see angels, cherubim, uh, in the first five books of the Bible, but they, they deny these things. So for them, these would just be, uh, there would just be God and the physical creation. There would be no afterlife. This is, how did you word it? Uh, this is 
before earlier. Uh, this is the only life. I'm sorry. You only live once. Yeah, you only live once. Go for the gusto. Yolo. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, in a sense, for us Christians, that's true. We only live once. It's just that death isn't the end, right? It's it's only the beginning or the end of the be or the, yeah the end of the beginning and yeah. And we get to live forever and ever. Everybody actually gets to live forever and ever. It's just that those who reject Christ never experience the life-giving power of the resurrection of Jesus. They experience more of that power that Hiroshima and Nagasaki experienced. Um, yeah, if you've ever seen any, read any descriptions, flesh being burned off and Horrendous, horrendous. The resurrection power of Jesus. They, some of the Corinthians are people that were trying to lead the Corinthians astray, preaching another Jesus, um, another gospel. They were denying the resurrection. And Jesus said, you know, take a step back. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Our faith is in vain. And if our, if, if our faith is in, in vain and then our sins are not forgiven, think about this. What do we have to live for other than this life? And for the Sadducees, they would say, yeah, you're right. How sad. How sad if all we have to look forward to is this life, that there is no life beyond this. People, when you die and you're resurrected, um, you are not a different you. You don't have a different conscience. Your spirit will not change. Now, your physical body will, but your spirit will not change. You are you. You will always be you. Whether you are in heaven or in hell, you, will ex- you, you, are, you have the same conscience, consciousness, whatever psychological term we want to throw out there. That's, that's you. You know, many people, do, you know, once you're dead, whatever, whatever that is that exists afterwards, yeah, I don't care about it. Well, that's you. That is your consciousness. That's who you. That's your memories. That is everything about you. That's you. All right? And how sad it is when people live only in this present age and they have no thought of what life is going to be like after they die. No sense of accountability, no sense of a God that would judge. They just want the quote-unquote fairy book ending in which God says, sure, I'll forgive all of your sins. Hitler, come on, buddy, let's go. You're with me forever. Stalin, let's go. Nazi tongue, come on. And, and well, oh, no, 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 no. Those guys probably wouldn't make, but I'd make it. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, Okay. Then say how many sins? One sin. One sin disqualifies us, okay? So eternity is extremely important. And I, I hope that all of us, the weight of that, the concept of eternity is significant. And not just for us, but it should propel us and compel us to be able to share this good news of the resurrection of Jesus with those around us. The apostles throughout the book of Acts This is what they testify to, the resurrection of Jesus. We are witnesses of this. They constantly say we are witness of this. 
and they were willing to suffer. They counted it an incredible joy that they were worthy of suffering for the name. Worthy of suffering to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus so changed them, so set their focus on God and this vision of God to see his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, that they were willing to sacrifice everything to see that one goal accomplished. That God's kingdom would be manifest, people would be saved, that the kingdom of God would extend from sea to sea. That was their goal. That's what beat in their heart. They were willing to lay their life down in a New York second, which is a lot faster than a Norlando second, by the way. In a New York second, for the gospel, for, for the gospel, for the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so if Jesus isn't raised, if there is no resurrection, our faith is vain, our sins are not forgiven, and we still remain in them. What sense is there? Just for this life, really? Um, so it is incredibly important. Now I want you to turn with me to uh, to the left there to chapter fifteen. Uh, I'll start in verse 3. And it says, For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. And, and this is kind of somewhat formulaic for a creed. All right? This is something that he received and he's passing on to them. And he probably received it within a first, the first few years of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul was converted within the first few years of the resurrection of Jesus. And he is now sharing this creed. So this is something that was kind of hammered out, all right? And, and this is it. It says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So that means that Christ's death on the cross, we should be able to go back to the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament, and be able to find them. Find those Old Testament passages that talk about this. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter, etc., etc. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It also says, go over to Luke 24. Raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. Jesus is sitting in the, uh, the upper, in a room that had been locked, that the disciples, for fear of their lives, were hiding themselves. He appears to them, and, and I don't want to just say the apostles, there were others there with him. It says in verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer. That means we could go into the Old Testament, Christ will suffer. And rise from the dead on the third day. We should find that in the Old Testament. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We should find that in the Old Testament scriptures. But here is my question. So two places we have found Jesus will rise on the third day according to the scriptures. Where in the Old Testament does it tell us this? Put on your thinking caps. We're in the Old Testament. Does it tell us this? Christ would rise on the third day. 
Okay, Let, let's turn to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, verse 11. Isaiah 53, 12 verses specifically referring to the Messiah, that he would suffer for us, the sins, our sins being placed on him, that he would be punished for our transgressions. Um, and in verse 11, it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, or perhaps better, by knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Okay? So we have what would, now that we see the resurrection, understand the resurrection from the New Testament, we can see this passage does prophesy of that. Other passages, Aisha. Does the story about the uh, snake, like Moses and the snake on the staff, does that count? They were, if they looked, they would be healed. Jesus used that to analogous to John 3.16. In fact, that's, he quoted that in John 3.15. Um, I'm not sure if it would refer to the resurrection, but it would certainly refer to us believing and then having life as a result. Juliana? Hosea 6. Hosea 6, good. What does that say? Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Okay. All right. Um, interesting passage. Um, not sure if we would be referring to Christ or not, um, but it's an interesting uh, passage that uses the word like the, on the third day. Um, okay. Definitely at least us being healed, being forgiven of our sins once we have repented, and then perhaps taking the resurrection power of Jesus and applying it to us. Interesting, though, that they would say on the third day. Okay. There's also Jonah that was in the whale. Good. Okay. Turn to Jonah 1.17. Do you know verse was that? That's Hosea 6.1. Jonah one seventeen, <clears throat> and in Jonah one seventeen, write this because that's not in your notes. By the way, write this down. Uh, Jonah one seventeen is. It, do you have it there, Juliana? Yeah. Do you want to read it? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Okay. The parallel passage, as it's referred to by Jesus. Uh, would be Matthew twelve forty. It says, Even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. Okay? So that is kind of a prophecy by analogy or type. Okay? Can I ask a quick question, which you might want to answer later? Mm-hmm. He was in the grave. Right. 
So he he was he was laid in the grave for three days. And we we think of the belly of the earth as hell, okay? Um, and so you descend to hell, you ascend to heaven, and so we think of the molten magma in the earth and hell, and we make those associations. Dante, I'm sure, helped us out with that. But the the truth is. Yes, Jesus did not suffer in hell. He suffered hell on the cross. Hell is basically separation from God, and that is why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay? So, yeah. Um, can, can we interpret one of those scriptures you had us look up, you will not abandon him to Sheol? Good, okay. Well, let, let's turn to, if you don't mind, um, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. That is actually found in Psalm 16. You can, you can write down Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, but I, I want us to see how it's quoted in chapter 2 okay, of Acts. Chapter 2 of Acts. He quotes it uh, starting with verse 25. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Excuse me. I saw the Lord. There we go. Yes. I'm sorry. Anyway, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you have not you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy ones see decay. Now, the king would be referred to as the holy one or the anointed one or even a son of God. And so this fits David, but it doesn't fit David, which is what Peter's point is going to be in a moment. Nor will you let your holy ones see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will give, you will fill me with joy in your presence. There's really so much that we could look at this, and I'm going to have to pare it down um, because we've got only a, a, a minute or so to, to do that. But he continues on. Brothers, here's his point. Brothers. I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now, what, what, what you now see and hear. Um, but he continues on. David's body would still be in the grave. His body did see decay. So what on earth is David talking about? I'm throwing that question out to you right now. What on earth is David talking about, Scott? Okay, now go further, because technically his body did see decay, 
But you're kind of referring to, even though that happens, that body will not stay decayed. And so David is referring to his, his own personal resurrection. But Peter, of course, makes a, a different point here. And what would that point be? Christ never saw decay. So he is the holy one that's referred to here, not David, though David would raise from the dead one day. Technically, his body did see decay, but Jesus's did not. So this is taken from Psalm 16. There is absolutely no way that this could truly technically be applied to anyone but someone who physically, bodily rose from the dead. There's a teaching out there um, that is very prevalent, and it is that Jesus' body did, not, did Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead, but rather he rose in his spirit. His body stayed in the grave, and that his that his spirit was raised. That the disciples may have been somewhat misunderstanding, maybe when they wrote the Gospels, a little bit of legend had got tossed in there, and it got embellished, much like all the other miracles, so they said. But we just read a creed in 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about Jesus' resurrection, and we're going to come back to that passage, but Jesus was not raised a spirit, Jesus was raised a spiritual body. All right? Jesus was not raised a physical body like this. It was different, okay? We're going to come to that in just a moment, but Jesus was not raised a spirit. You know, you, could, you can just move your hand through a spirit. For this creed that we read makes it clear that he appeared to them in a form... And later in that chapter, it, said, it says it was a spiritual body. Not a spirit, but a spiritual body. We're going to find out what that means. But let's realize that as we move into this, that there's a lot of teachings out there that want to distort the truth because for, for a body to rise from the dead is the most amazing thing that we could ever see. Okay? It, it truly is. The world understands this. So somehow they have to fudge with the New Testament to make it say something that it truly does not. I remember when I was doing a, a, a seminar, much like a courtroom setting at uh, SSC, Seminole State College, and one of the main uh, teachings that was opposed to the resurrection was this idea prevalent among atheists, it's prevalent among liberal theology, Jesus truly did not bodily rise from the dead. Okay, Very prevalent in liberal theology. That's why liberal theology is dead. All right, It's not Jesus that's dead, it's liberal theology that's dead, because it does not have a resurrected Christ. It has a spirit that, that supposedly raised and appeared to the... Dis no, Jesus rose bodily from the dead... It's prophesied in the Old Testament. The idea of three days is perhaps best seen in Jonah 1.17. His resurrection is predicted in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Jonah in Isaiah 53.11, Psalm 16 that we just read. Um, 
And then there's a, there's an interesting passage, and I'm not quite sure exactly what to do with it, but I, I at this point, in my understanding of God's word, I find it interesting. And it's found in Numbers, uh, Leviticus 19. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. But Leviticus 19, 5 through 6, and it's talking about fellowship offerings. Fellowship offerings, if I could use a New Testament word, uh, well, fellowship is a New Testament word, but a different word as we would move into the New Testament, we might come upon this word reconciliation, all right? It's a reconciliation. It's that which brings peace between man and God. And this type of fellowship offering, you were supposed to eat it the first day. Um, you could eat it the next day, but on the third day, by the third day, if there was any left over on the third day, you could not eat it. And I just find, you know, how interesting. Um, is this, because the, Jesus being raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, we have only one passage, perhaps Hosea 6, though I'm, I'm not sure about the we, but is, is Jesus the fulfillment of this fellowship offering because he was that offering that made reconciliation that refused to remain in the grave on the third day. So take that as you will, but um, this is something that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and it's not something that is new as we move into the New Testament. Um, Go ahead back to Acts chapter 2 if you have moved somewhere else. Acts 2. Sorry, what verses in Leviticus 19? Leviticus 19, 5 and 6. All right. In verse 24 it says, But God raised... This is again Peter's part of Peter's sermon. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Think about that for a moment. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That word, uh, that word impossible is two Greek words here. We would say not possible instead of impossible to make it two words. It's the, it's the Greek word not and it is the Greek word the root of this Greek word for possible is the Greek word dunamis. Now, dunamis is used regularly in the New Testament to speak of Jesus and, and the apostles' miraculous power, the miraculous power of God. And we take that Greek word and we transliterate it. That means take the Greek letter and make it an English letter, and we get the word dynamite. Dynamite, of course, is that explosive power that, you know, we look back in the Greek and we thought, you know, power, we like that word. And so we coined this word dynamite for this explosive stick that when the, when the fuse is lit, it eventually explodes. I want you, though, to imagine taking that stick of dynamite or a bundle of sticks of dynamite, placing it in the ground, lighting that fuse, and what would happen? Would the ground perhaps be so heavy upon it, just a few feet under, that you would just see maybe a little, and that's it? What would happen to the dirt? It would fly everywhere. 
you, you see, the ground would not be able to hold down the power that's contained in those sticks of dynamite. Couldn't happen. That is the very same thought that's embedded in this. It is not possible for death. Death was powerless in the face of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It could not hold him down. There was a three-day fuse attached to, to Jesus' body, if you will. And it, it exploded on the scene, but not with destruction and death, but with life. And, and so what an awesome picture that Peter paints for us. Death was powerless. It was at its mercy when it came to the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Could not hold him down. Couldn't keep him back from just exploding from the grave with life. His body, it says later, did not decay. He was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father. The descendant of David sat on David's throne. Right now, Jesus is sitting on David's throne, not on some earthly throne here, but he is seated in the heavenlies. He is seated on David's throne as David's heir. Scott, question, comment? Yeah, a little bit earlier, did you say that the liberal theology is that Jesus, um, he came back again as a spirit, not as a... Correct, correct. So how, how, did, how did they account for his wounds from the crucifixion? Right. Well, understand that when, when it comes to the Gospels, atheists take a view of legend and same with the... Uh, same with the liberal theology. They would say that the Gospels were written much later. Actually, they initially believed that nearly all the Gospels were written in the second century. Well, that door was not just closed. It was slammed shut. I don't know of any liberal theology. There might be one or two. But I don't know of any liberal theologians that believe that any of the Gospels were written in the they second century. I'm sorry? They still teach it in colleges, though. Do they? Really? That's yeah. what Wow, that is so old. They need to read some updated books by liberal theologians, mind you. Very few, if any, liberal theologians believe that anymore. And it's because of the work of William Ramsey and others, William Albright and such, specifically Ramsey's, as he went through and he dated, um, the, uh, through archaeology, um, the events of Luke and Acts, and he said, this is so accurate. It's absolutely impossible for Luke to have written his gospel and the book of Acts in the second century. Couldn't happen. And, and he gets very detailed um, with names and, and such. And his conclusion is Luke ranks among the best historians of all time. Could not have been written. And the evidence, as he put it out there, and, and he, he had a strong liberal bent to him. Um, he put the evidence out there, and uh, the liberal theologians came to the conclusion, the guy's right. And so they've moved those dates to the 80s and 90s. But regardless, they would say, that's still enough time for legend to creep in. And so here's this poor Jesus guy. He's preaching love God. And just everybody misunderstood him. And over time, um, you know, he's doing miracles. He's raised from the dead. Of course, this didn't happen. That's the liberal view. Okay. So their answer to you, Scott, would be the gospel writers were wrong. They 
they got it wrong. What would their answer be to the, the fuck, I'm sorry, but what would their answer be to the martyrdom of all the apostles? Um, they were so old anyway that, uh, you know, what, what's, a, what's a year or two cut off? You know? That, that's what they would probably say. They might, some others might have other answers. So they're into euthanasia as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and it was a power struggle. Especially between Peter and Paul. I won't get into that. To okay. what end is this uh, liberal theology? I mean, why would they take that viewpoint? What was the purpose of distorting that? Because they don't want to believe in... Let's understand something. The gospel portrays a God that is willing to judge a world and send it to hell. That is not a happy ending for most people. They don't like that. They don't see miracles themselves, so how do we explain this? They want to be rational. They want to be scientific, and miracles don't fit science. Actually, they would say miracles are extra scientific. They're beyond the natural, and science has proven that these miracles and such, they're superstitions. So those are the superstitions of bygone days. We are the intellectual and the scientific, and therefore we cannot take these miracles seriously. Come on, we're educated people, and that would be their approach. And, and so is that, you know, so they can make people feel good and draw more people in with that kind of... Well, that, that's, that's why neo-orthodoxy was birthed, because Barth and... and um, and all these others, they, they felt that liberal theology had gone too far and it created a dead religion and a dead God. And so they kind of rebelled against that, but they didn't like what the conservatives were teaching for centuries and centuries. That, that They didn't like the concept of God's wrath, um, that God is a loving God, will send everyone to heaven, and therefore would... The, the, the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, only has value for this life because eventually we're all going to go to heaven anyway, so what's the big deal? Um, that's, the, that's the ultimate conclusion of neo-orthodoxy. God will save everybody. And conclusion, though they don't make this con- conclusion, why risk your life right now for, for Jesus? Why, you, why, why be a martyr? Why lay your life down? You know, there's no sense in that. These, why evangelize? They're going to go to heaven anyway. But... They can make the best of their life right now by following Jesus. Okay, but it's just, why risk your life? Why lay it down? So again, neo-orthodoxy railed on liberal theology because it was dead, but they themselves came up with a dead theology. Okay. Well, let's move on. Um, So here we have... The, this resurrection of Jesus, this power displayed. And in Romans 1.4, it says this, uh, who through the spirit of holiness, was de- referring to Jesus the Son, was, re- was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, His resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. Now, please understand that Jesus did not become the Son of God at his resurrection. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that 
because he was the son of God, of course, he would rise from the dead. So his resurrection declared that he was the son of God. It was proof, if you will. It was evidence that he was the son of God. All right? Um, what do we call it? FDA regulations that are placed on food, you know, that, that pass certain inspections. Um, once bef- or rather before that stamp of approval by the FDA, was that food good? Or did it only become good when the stamp was placed on it? Which one? It was good before. It was good before, absolutely. And so Jesus was the son of God before he was raised from the dead, but his resurrection declared that he was the son of God. No one else but the son of God was or could have been raised from the dead like Jesus was. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to now come full circle to what Jesus' resurrection secured for us. What did it accomplish for us? Okay? Um, Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. You know, before I read that one, let me, let me do Romans 6, 4, okay? So, but write down Ephesians 2, 6, because that's not in your notes. But now also write down Romans 6, 4. I think I'm going to read Romans 6, 4 first. It says, okay, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then Ephesians 2.6, it says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So the first thing that we need to realize is Jesus' victory over death And not just physical death, but it has broader implications. It brings spiritual death. And so this this explosive, dunamis power of God displayed in Jesus' resurrection is, is now impacting us. Even as he died on the cross and was laid in the grave, so we are buried with him in baptism in death. Okay, dying to self. We are raised anew. That is a reflection of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Okay? Jesus' resurrection from the dead therefore secured for me a new life. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, it says um, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were slaves of wickedness, of sin. And we were dead. The wages of sin is death. And so here we are, we are spiritually dead, though physically alive, and the resurrection power of Christ, then once we believe, raises us up as well, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Okay? 
by being in Christ, by virtue of being in Christ, we have all the inheritance that Christ has. So therefore, the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ because we are in Christ, all right? He accomplished all of these things. And as we are in him, we have these things as well. He was raised from the dead and experiences life and he's now seated with the Father, so it is with us. By virtue of us being in Christ. Now, I don't feel and look as if I am in Christ, but this is a this gives us a, a theological understanding that by being in Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, I too have all of this inheritance. This ties in this ties in with this idea that for many Christians they are constantly wanting to accomplish to acquire this inheritance this blessing from God um What this understanding of being in Christ does for us is it places the whole burden of this inheritance and favor, grace, blessing of God completely on what Christ accomplished for us. You see, I don't have to wake up in the morning and realize, well, I've got a promotion on the blocks today. I need to be really good so that God will bless me with that promotion. Or I need to make sure I don't sin because if I sin, maybe God will not give me that promotion. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever thought that way before? Now, let me answer perhaps for you. I have felt that way before. I have, you know, I have sinned and I've, and I've been praying about this and I got into this stupid argument with my wife And I was mean and I had to go back and apologize and feeling this weight, God's not going to bless me now. How foolish. This was already accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross by now me being in him and by virtue of his resurrection, I have access to this inheritance. I don't have access to this inheritance, but what I did that day, whether I sinned or didn't sin, whether I, was, uh, whether I put a smile on God's face or not, which by the way, we do regardless, I am in Christ and this is all available to me. And because of this, because of this, Paul tells us in Romans 8, when there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. See, it's because I'm in Christ. He has accomplished all of this. I'm not worthy of it. I am only worthy of it by, the, by virtue of the fact that I am in Christ, and Christ is worthy of it. So that is my inheritance. That's what I have. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to, you know, just pray, oh God, please make me really, really, really good. God is not a Santa Claus. You do not fall on his naughty and nice list because you're in Christ by virtue of what Christ has done. We constantly receive blessing upon blessing. Now, don't get me wrong. If we stray, God does bring discipline, but he does so to bring us back to him. God doesn't look at us. I mean, do you remember this? If, If we got what our sins deserved, who could stand? Nobody. 
We experience His grace every day because we are in Christ. Do we say that because maybe perhaps by sinning we've wandered outside of his grace? Are are we outside of being in Christ? No, we're still in Christ, even though we've stumbled into sin. Now, let me assure you that if you stumble into sin and you continue to do this and your heart does not repent, God will find a way to bring your heart back to him. And he many times uses discipline. And that discipline... Please understand this. Almost always God uses discipline that's in the very area in which you're struggling. Okay? You don't have to step back and see this bad thing that happens and wonder, what is God punishing for me now? That's not how God operates. God punishes us if we have been unfaithful with our finances and we have just bought, bought, bought and put it on a credit card and we have fed the flesh... God is going to bring discipline in our finances because he wants us to stop doing that. He wants to get us attention, bring us to repentance. So I don't know, maybe you need to cut up your credit card. Maybe you need, God needs to change something so that you're not buy, buy, buy. I know of one particular couple, the, the guy married this woman and then found out she had several credit cards, maxed them out and had tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And he said, he found this out and I'm not suggesting this. I I don't know. Maybe she willingly surrendered them, but he got all of her credit cards and cut them up and then worked hard at paying those off. I don't make sure that there is a, a, you're on the same page if you're going to, do that. And, and can I encourage you to do that? To, to, if you're the one who has all those credit cards maxed out, cut up your credit cards. Just cut them up. God wants to free you from self-gratification. All right? All right. So where was I? In Christ. All right? We, by being in Christ, we have been made alive. Well, we've been made alive by the regenerating work of the Spirit and placed in Christ, and we experience this life constantly, constantly. Um, The second thing, turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Romans 4, 25. And it says, He was delivered over to death, for our sins, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, okay, and was raised to life for what? For our justification. Now, there's going to come a time several weeks from now in which we're going to study sanctification and justification, okay? Justification basically is being acquitted of all wrong, so our sins are not just so, so that our sins are forgiven and wiped away, expunged from our record. When God looks at it, there is no sin. But instead what he sees, he doesn't just see a blank slate. He now sees the righteous acts of his son Jesus placed upon that. So we call that the imparted or imputed righteousness of Christ. And so that's what this is. We have now been given the righteousness of Christ, okay? And that's what justification is. 
That only happened by virtue of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? Justification. So justification is uh, a double-edged sword. It is not just the expunging of our sinful record. It is now the uh, transference of Jesus' righteousness to us. Okay? And it's in that righteousness that we stand before God. Now, when we get to justification, you're going to understand more of that and the need for that, okay? Because right now it might just, okay, so it's, so it's kind of like when I dressed up for Halloween, right? And I put a, a sheet over me and I looked like a ghost. And No, 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 it's not, okay? So by Jesus, by virtue of Jesus' resurrection, we have been justified before him. His righteousness has been imputed to us. And that's, that's a, like a legal transaction imputed to us. And then, um, lastly, I want us to see our bodies will be resurrected in a similar or with a similar type body. And again, it's not a spirit. It is a spiritual body. Okay? So let's go ahead and turn to... Um, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, verse 50. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 49. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, who was Adam in this context, flesh, physical, bleed, you can physically die, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. And who would that be? Jesus. Jesus, okay. So Jesus was raised from the dead. Earlier in verse, what is it, 22, 23, he says that he is the first fruits, he's the first one of the resurrection. And we will follow. So he is the pattern, if you will, so that in Philippians 3.21, if you were to turn there, it says something very similar as 1 Corinthians 15 does. And it says, referring to Jesus, who by the power, this is Philippians 3.21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control... How great is that power, by the way? To bring everything under his control. That includes those little teeny tiny atoms that you can't see with all their explosive power. All of that he can place under one finger. Easy. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. All right? Understand in Acts 1.11, Acts 1.11, as Jesus was being raised or ascending into the heavens in the cloud, the angel said, as he is leaving, in similar fashion will he return. Jesus 
was ascended to the Father with a transformed physical body. And he's going to return that way. But my point is this. When Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, when they counseled together before the beginning of time, and they made this choice, or theologians call a decree, for Jesus to come and die for the sins of man, they realized Jesus, at the point of entry into time and space that is our existence, he would be forever different. Forever. He will never cease being a man. Fully God, but he will always be fully man. Okay? That was the sacrifice. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, he will stay this way. And he does that because of what he has accomplished for us and he will remain that way for us. So when he, was, when he came to this earth, that was an eternal sacrifice. Forever. And, but he, was, he could bleed while he was on earth, but when he was raised from the dead, he could not. He had a transformed body. Turn to Luke 24. Now, I want to focus on this a bit. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, Luke 24, Jesus says in verse 39, he is standing before, we, we read from Luke 24 earlier, he's standing before the, those disciples gathered in that room, and he says, look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have, what? Flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. In Jesus' glorified body, he could eat, he could consume food, he could drink. I'm sure he enjoyed it. I'm not sure why he didn't ask for filet mignon, but anyways. Um, he asked for broiled fish. I'm sure it was a tasty. I'm sure mm, it was awesome. But he, it says he has flesh and bones. This is a very physical type of body. However, it is not a perishable body. And we need to realize this. This is not a spirit body. It is a spiritual body. Okay? It says in 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there, but I'm sure you have heard it before. It says, verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood would be a, an idiom for this right here, that when you cut it, it does what? Bleeds. Bleeds. So this is what Paul is referring to. Jesus does not say, I... Jesus does not say, see, I have flesh and blood. He said, I have flesh and bones. He's trying to communicate something that 
Paul communicated here in which he says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all, no exceptions, all believers in Jesus that he talked about earlier in the chapter, all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. He calls it, the, he says, the mortal will take on immortality, the perishable, imperishableness. And so it is very much like this thing here, but it cannot die. <clears throat> what physical limitations it has, I don't know. Was it, will we be able to disappear and reappear as Jesus did? I, I don't know. Was that special for the, him being the son of God? I don't know. Some people, theologians come down on both sides. I can't answer that question. But Jesus in his glorified body was able to suddenly appear in their midst. He was not confined by this thing that we call our present existence that's comprised of time, space, and, ma- and matter. Okay? He wasn't bound by that. It, w- it was a different existence. So his, he, his body had been transformed. And our bodies will be similarly transformed. Question, comment, well, Rachel? We also know that he still has his scars. Yes, so he still has his scars. Mm-hmm. That's right. So that was actually pretty much on point for my question. Is, mm-hmm. our, is, it, is, it, is it a scripture that we, when we're resurrected, that we have a perfect body? Is our, is our new body perfect? Um, it would depend on how we define perfect. And the reason, I, the, but the reason I ask that, and, that, and that's a point, is not whether it's perfect or not. It's because of what Rachel said, which is that Jesus, on his resurrection, still had the scars of his crucifixion. Right. So his body was therefore, per se, not perfect because mm-hmm. he still had holes in his hands and his feet and, and, and his sight. Right. But let me just say this, that there is total healing there. I would venture to say that Jesus had those scars because he needed to demonstrate the evidence that this is still him. That, that this, is the, this is the one, the very same one that died on the cross is now standing before you. Um, to some degree, he could change his appearance. He either changed his appearance or he blinded the eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus. Because they, they walked with him for seven miles, so for a couple of hours, and they couldn't recognize him until he broke bread, and I'm sure he prayed in a way that was very characteristic of Jesus, and then their eyes were opened. So was it that they had cataracts and temporary cataracts and couldn't see too well? It, it, I, I don't know. It just it does say that his appearance had been changed in Mark 16. Uh, that's found in Luke 24, by the way, the road to Emmaus. But Mark 16 kind of sums it up. And um, I'm not sure if Luke 24 specifically says his, 
his appearance was transformed. It does in Mark 16, though. And so, whatever is of genetic defect, I would venture to say is imperfect in the sight of God. And that would, be, that would certainly be corrected in heaven. Um, beauty will always be in the eyes of the beholder. Maybe beauty will not be all about symmetry. Maybe someone in earth that we view is not very attractive. When we get to heaven, our aesthetics will change and they will be, they will be the most beautiful. So I, I don't have answers to those questions. I'm not sure scripture does, but I do know that there will be no... We're not going to look at our bodies and just say, oh God, why did you give me this body? I was really hoping for, you know... Um, so, some uh, handsome guy or beautiful woman that, that you know of. Man, can I put, a, can I put in a different order? <laughs> you know? Nah, it, it won't be like that. The end? answer that question um, I can make a stab at it and there are certain cautions that I have when it comes to near death experiences because understand we live in a day in which there is a craze for near death experiences I'm not going to discount the near death experiences except when they contradict scripture the caution that I have is that people start describing and defining and dreaming of and thinking of heaven not according to the limitations that scripture gives to us, but now we begin to have a whole theology built on people's experiences. And there, what is to, I mean, when you dream, how many of you have ever watched, um, what's the dreaming movie? Inception. Just Inception. Okay. Inception, and what is it that, you know, a dream within a dream within a dream and, and you know that years and years can take place within 10 seconds okay the mind I mean and you can fall off your bed how many of you have ever had this you've fallen off your bed and before you hit the ground you have a dream and it's a long dream now I'm only saying that to say that in the moment between consciousness and unconsciousness or death, to what degree our mind can present to us these visions, I don't know. I, in our dream state, they certainly can happen. Death is scary. Why wouldn't someone want to think of loved ones? But it's very possible they may see those. The Bible in, in Hebrews does talk that we, about us being surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses I mean, there's, there's millions in heaven, not just angels, but people who have gone on before us through the blood of Christ living in heaven. 
who am I to say that they would not be greeting us or maybe that we could see them? I don't know, but I, I, I am going to refuse to step outside of the bounds of Scripture to say, yes, this is the case. Is it possible? I would say Scripture doesn't say that it's not possible, so that would be my answer. Scripture does not say that it's not possible. It may, but it may not. I don't know. Okay. Right. So that's between heaven and Hades, or Abraham's bosom and Hades. Um, anyways, so you're going to have more questions, I'm sure, when we start talking about the resurrection of our own bodies in several months from now. But this is kind of a foretaste. This is, this is the purpose of the resurrection that we're talking about here. And so as Jesus was raised, overcame death, and though even Hebrews 2, the focus is Jesus overcoming death by the cross, it's an empty formula, if you will, if there was no resurrection. Jesus experienced or tasted death, but by virtue of his resurrection, we no longer need to fear death. So Hebrews 2 does focus on Jesus' death and overcoming death, but it's an empty equation without his resurrection. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying here? So it's not just by virtue of his death, okay? But he tasted death with us. By tasting death with us, and now being resurrected from the dead, he plundered and defeated death. All right? Okay. Um, so here, here's the takeaway, because we, we're past time here. Here's the takeaway. We have been raised with Christ. The very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is now in us. It has made us alive. It exudes its power when we pray for people and God heals them. Um, we see it available to us in our prayers, that very same power that God exercised in raising Christ from the dead, that incomparably great power that's beyond our understanding is available through prayer when God steps in and changes up situations. Uh, the Old Testament survey class was looking at uh, Isaiah, and we studied Isaiah in 45 minutes. And we just came, very briefly, we came to that passage in which Hezekiah stands firm in his faith. The Assyrians, who had 21 years earlier destroyed Israel and taken them captive, now is at the gates of Jerusalem and saying, you're going down. You are going down. Don't tell me you're going to trust in your God, Yahweh. Look at all the other nations. They supposedly trust in their gods. Yeah, they are they're fodder to us. They're destroyed. They're now our slaves. Many of them killed because they refused to submit. So are you going to submit or will you not? Hezekiah had the audacity to say, we will not submit. There were 180,000 Assyrians outside the gates. And he said, we will not submit. And then he, and he was so bold. And then he went into you know, the, the temple and, and seeking God. And he just fell before the Lord. And Ezekiel, or Isaiah 
gave him a word that God was going to to um, free them. And that 180,000 Assyrians died overnight. People walked outside. Can you imagine 180,000 Assyrian soldiers of any kind lying at your doorstep in your backyard? Wow. That is the resurrection power. That's the creative power. That is the destructive power that our God has who brings all things under his control. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have given us new life in Christ. Thank you, Father, that you reached down and raised us from the dead. You seated us with your son Jesus in the heavenly realms in your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we have, uh, in our prayers, we have available at our access anything that would lie within your will. You, would, you, 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 you can do the most amazing miracles. And it is that very same power that you used to raise your son Jesus from the dead. Death could not hold him down. The devil cannot thwart the amazing powerful plans of God. And I just thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that is impossible with our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I, can I just, uh, as I was closing the prayer, I was reminded of something that happened to me. And, and this, this, is, this has never happened to me before. And it's almost kind of silly. I, we got a, uh, an overhead projector, and so I was testing it out, and I went back to just grab an overhead, and I reached into the A section, and I just pulled out the first one. And as I was reaching in to grab it out, God said, this is prophetic for your ministry right now. And I reached in, and I pulled it out, and it said, all things are possible. And you know, all things are possible. And, and I just want to encourage you, that word possible that we looked at in, in Acts 2, that Dunamis power of God, that is what is available to us through Christ. That is the resurrection power of Christ. That is what is available to us. That incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead. All right? Nothing is impossible with our God. Amen? Let's go ahead and break up into pairs if we could. Um, If we need to break up into threes, I'm not opposed to that. Um, We are a little bit shorter on time today. And, uh, and share prayer needs if you would. Let's, let's pray for miracles tonight. Can we do that? Let's pray for some miracles. Awesome.